Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church. It's good to see you this morning, as always. Uh, one thing about this facility that we use here, it sees a lot of uh, activity. There's a lot of groups coming through here during the week, and, and we come through on the weekends, and that's a good thing that they're leveraging this space well, but what that also means is that uh, sometimes we get in here and things aren't always the way they're supposed to be, and so we had to do some troubleshooting this morning. I didn't, but Matt and Calvin did, and, and Bradley, um, <clears throat> and they got everything working um, well except for this center screen here that's usually down, so that's, that's why things are a little uh, askew today and pointing in the wrong direction. Sorry about that, but uh, thanks to Calvin and Matt for getting things uh, together for us this morning. <clears throat> now, next Sunday, Andrew is going to uh, wrap up for us this sermon series that we've been journeying through together called Origins. And this is a sermon series where we've been exploring together the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, and it's been a good journey so far, I think, and I hope you do as well. But for this week, I wanted to take a step back and kind of retrace some of our steps here as we reflect upon the things that we've seen and heard it's good at times to retrace our steps. It's important for us as Christians to step back at times and to, to see the bigger picture because there is a bigger picture that the Bible presents to us, a single storyline really that can be quite fascinating as we learn to recognize it and as we consider it. In fact, as we step back a bit, we can see a certain pattern taking place in Genesis chapters 1 to 3 that I hope to show you is is the very same pattern that repeats itself again and again across the entire biblical narrative and really across the entirety of, of human history and also across our own individual lives, too. And so with that thought in mind, let's dive into this together this morning. I'd like to explore these ideas today under three headings, the, the power of the word, the problem of the heart, and the preeminence of grace. First, the power of the word. One of the things that we've seen clearly on this journey so far is that when God speaks, things happen. We've seen this from the very beginning. We're told in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 1 how God spoke, and when he spoke, the power of his word brought light into darkness. The power of his word brought order and organization into the chaos and the void that was there before it. The power of his word created life and beauty where there was none before. You may recall that on days 1, 2, and 3 in Genesis chapter 1, God spoke into existence three different realms, the sky, the sea, and the land. And then on days 4, 5, and 6, we saw in perfect parallelism God populating those realms with life, filling the sky with the birds of the air, filling the sea with fish and aquatic life, and filling the land with animals. God brought order and organization to the void and the chaos by, by creating these hospitable realms and then by creating living beings who would inhabit those realms and, in a sense, rule over those realms. It's a fascinating hierarchy of order and organization brought about each and every time that, that God spoke in Genesis chapter 1. Then in verse 27 of chapter 1, we saw uh, that God created man and woman uniquely in his own image. 
and in his own likeness. And out of all the creatures that God made, man and woman alone, we were told, were made in God's image and in God's likeness. And what this means is that in certain respects, you and I are we're like God. We, we represent and reflect God in ways that do not apply to anything else that God had created. And that's a very interesting thing to consider. Indeed, every human being on this planet is made in the image of God, whether they know it or not, whether they believe it or not. And as a result, every human life has dignity and is important. Every life matters. Every life, in fact, has something to teach us. And I do know it's a great challenge at times, but we need to approach every person in this life humbly and, and helpfully with that uh, understanding always in mind. In Genesis chapter 2, we saw that God was forming man from the dust of the earth. He was, he was getting his hands dirty, so to speak, like a sculptor creating a work of art. And then we saw that he breathed life into the man. What we see in these passages is God being very personally and very uh, intimately involved, not only in the creation of man and woman, but, but also in his interactions with them. He creates human life in his own image in this, this up-close and personal kind of way. And then in verse 28, it says God blessed them. God blessed the man and the woman this is the approval and the affirmation of God spoken over the lives of the man and the woman who he had made. He's saying, these are my children made in my image, and, and they matter. They reflect and represent me, and I love them, and I am blessing them. All across the pages of the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, you simply can't miss the fact that when, that when God speaks, things happen. There's a force and a power behind God's word, a, a power to create, a, a power to bring order and to, to give life and to bless it. And it's interesting, you see, for you and I, one of the ways I think that we are made in God's image and God's likeness, one of the ways we are like God, so to speak, is that, is that our words have a certain power too, don't they? The Bible actually tells us this, and, and we know this as well from, from experience, my words and your words, they have power. They have the power to give life or the power to bring death, we're told in the Proverbs. If you think about it, it's hard not to look around these days with all the strife and the division, all the hatred and the violence and the wars around us, and to trace their origins, to, to trace their beginnings to words, to words that were spoken and to the things that people have said to one another and about one another. And if I'm honest with myself, some of the greatest damage that I've inflicted on those around me in my life have come from the words that have come out of my mouth. Words are incredibly powerful. There's a certain force behind them. And when they are used recklessly or irresponsibly, words can become like weapons. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, uses some pretty vivid uh, imagery in this regard when it says that rash or reckless words that come from our mouths, they can be like the thrust of a sword. They can pierce and penetrate beneath the surface. And as a result, they can cause deep and lasting 
internal wounds. Interestingly, the very same proverb also says that words can have the opposite effect too. The same proverb says that words of the wise can bring healing and can bring hope. And so thoughtless words can be like the thrusts of a sword cutting us and piercing us, whereas wisely chosen, thoughtful words can restore and can renew. But not only that, interestingly, it also seems that not only do words have great power, but, but the absence of words can also be very powerful. In fact, we need words. Words are necessary to our very existence and our well-being as humans. There's a form of isolation. It's called solitary confinement. It's a form of torture, really, where individuals are completely isolated from all human contact. They're cut off from all human interaction, all human conversation. Their only daily social contact might be a food of a tray of food shoved through a slot in the wall. And while this form of isolation is not a physical form of torture, it is torture nonetheless. And the symptoms that are observed in individuals who are confined uh, in this way are indeed quite physical and quite disturbing too. You see, what's been learned about people who have been isolated in this way, who never hear any words spoken to them at all, is that some of these people become essentially uh, catatonic. Others develop, develop severely autistic features. Still others become prone to panic attacks or become unusually uh, aggressive or erratic. And as scientists have studied the brains of such people using MRI scans and other technology, they found a number of underlying physiological changes and neurological damage caused by this type of isolation. In fact, they found a number of similarities in the, the types of brain activity observed in individuals who have been subjected to solitary confinement and in those who had experienced severe physical stress or physical injury. This led one researcher to suggest that without, the, without sustained human engagement and human interaction, without any words at all spoken to us, the brain of a person in solitary confinement may become as impaired as that of a person who has suffered a traumatic physical injury to the head. Our need for words, and for affirming words in particular, is so fundamental to our human existence that to be denied it can lead to madness and to mental instability. That's how powerful words can be. And here's the thing I'd like us to consider today, the main reason, I think, why the world is the way that it is, and with all the struggles and all the strife and all the suffering, is because, in a sense, what went down in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the picture, caused all of humanity to enter into a solitary confinement of sorts, where we could no longer hear the benediction and the blessing of our God that we need most of all, in our lives. We lost those affirming words of our Creator saying, you are good, you are valuable, you matter, and I love you. And the consequences of that, being isolated and cut off from those words, has been catastrophic in this world. All we have to do is look around and, and to look within, and we can see and sense that things are not the way that they were intended to be. 
the blessing of God and the approval and affirmation of God spoken over Adam and Eve was lost when sin entered the picture, and we've been forever changed as a result. And so let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk not about the power of the word. Let's talk for a moment about the problem of the heart, the pervasive problem of the human heart as a result of what went down that day in Genesis chapter 3. And it all began there with uh, words too, didn't it? On that fateful day when everything went sideways, we again saw the power of words. But this time we saw the power of words not to bring order or to bring life, but instead we saw the power of words to bring disorder and, and death. We saw the power of words to distort and to deceive and to destroy. Remember, God had made just one request of Adam and Eve, just one rule that he gave to them. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, he said, you can eat of any tree in the garden with, with one exception. Do whatever you want, eat whatever you want, except that one. Here are Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and they're going to show us something about ourselves in a very real sense. Here's Adam and Eve. They have what they need. God has provided for them everything that they really need. There's no death. There's no disease. There's nothing wrong. Everything is great. And yet through words, through the power of words, the serpent slithers onto the scene, and, and he gets Adam and Eve thinking. It gets them wondering some things. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent said, Did God actually say that? Are you sure that's what he said? Surely that's not what he meant. It's merely a piece of fruit, right? Surely you will not die. Surely you should be able to think for yourself, to make up your own minds. And through this subtle deception, he got them thinking and he got them wondering they began to look at that one tree that they were told they could not have, and they began to say to themselves, I'll bet that one tree is the best tree of all. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that one tree is better than all the other trees put together. The serpent subtly suggested that God wasn't really looking out for their best interests, and that in order to be fully free and in order to be uh, truly happy, they were going to have to decide for themselves. And in spite of having everything they really needed, they nevertheless began to feel unsettled and, and unsatisfied. They began to think, maybe there's, a, maybe there's a better situation over there than the one that I've been, been given here. Does that sound at all familiar? If we're going to be honest with ourselves, I know that it does. We hear that same deception. We hear those same lies. We're prone to that same sort of dangerous thinking. Chapter 3 of the book of Genesis is really holding up a mirror to us, isn't it? Adam and Eve, they believed the lie that God was holding out on them and that maybe he wasn't so good after all. They believed the lie that if only they could just have that one thing that they, that they didn't have, then things would be better for them than they already were. And so they decided to, to decide for themselves that they would decide what they would do, and they would disregard what God had said. And in chapter 3, verse 6 of the book of Genesis, we saw Eve take of the fruit of that one tree, and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and it says he ate it too. 
And the human condition was fractured in that moment because humanity's relationship with its creator was fractured in that moment. Whereas before they could walk with God in the cool of the day and everything was harmonized and everything was uh, good, we saw instead in Genesis chapter 3 that, that after this went down, Adam and Eve, they began blaming one another. They were blaming God. They were hiding from themselves. They were hiding from God. They were hiding from one another. And guilt and fear and shame took root in the human heart that day. Everything that was made and done by God seemed to be coming unmade and undone. A couple of months ago, a gentleman named Max Dupree passed away at the age of 92. Max was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He was a, a business leader. He was an author. He was, he was a spiritual leader as well, a Christian leader. In fact, he served on the board of trustees of the uh, Fuller Theological Seminary for nearly 40 years. And quite often, Max would be asked to be a speaker at leadership conferences and other events. And at one of those speaking engagements, in the question and answer time afterwards, somebody asked him what the most difficult thing was that he personally had to work on and to give attention to in his own heart and in his own life. And Mr. Dupree gave an interesting and perhaps unexpected response to that question. He said, the thing that I have to work hardest at in my own heart and in my own life is the interception of entropy. The interception of entropy, he said. Now, if you've ever taken a class in chemistry or physics, then you may be familiar with this term, entropy. It's also referred to as the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy is a term that speaks to the fact that the universe and everything in it is kind of winding down in a sense and moving from a state of order to a state of disorder and deterioration. And because of this, everything that is left to itself has a tendency to deteriorate. That is, unless, unless some intervening form of energy is supplied to prevent that deterioration from, from happening. The refrigerator does this at a very practical level in our lives. A refrigerator counteracts the process of entropy. You plug it into an electrical outlet, right, a source of energy, and that energy enables that refrigerator to produce cold air that then keeps the food inside of it from, from rotting. But if you disconnect that refrigerator from its energy source, entropy takes over pretty quickly. I was reminded of this a couple of years back when we lost power at our house for a few days during some winter storms, because it didn't take long for some, some pretty interesting smells to begin developing inside my refrigerator as some of the food inside began to deteriorate and, and decay because the energy source to prevent that process had been lost. And that's entropy in action. And sin and entropy are a lot alike in many ways. Sin moves us toward disorder too, doesn't it? Sin causes us to become more and more fragmented. It moves us toward greater and greater disorder and disintegration and decay in our lives. And the end result is a fragmented and disordered life with no real source of energy or no real uh, center of gravity to kind of hold it all together. 
Ever since Genesis chapter 3, instead of living in harmony and peace and stability with God and with, with one another, things have been moving instead toward disorder and chaos in the physical world around us, in our relational lives among us, and in our spiritual lives within us. And it's all right there in Genesis chapter 3 as entropy was, was birthed on that day. You can actually see several kinds of entropy show up in this passage. They're all the inevitable byproducts of sin in, in their lives and in ours as well. Verse 15 of chapter 3, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's the beginning of spiritual entropy. Verse 16, he says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now that's relational entropy. Verses 17 and 18, God says to, to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat, it, eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until, the, until you return to the ground. And that's physical entropy, right? And then in verse 19, God says to Adam and Eve, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, if that is an entropy, I do not know what is. We see disorder, we see decay, we see deterioration, all leading to death. And as we talked about in recent weeks, and as we're reminded in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, their condition became our condition. Sin entered the picture through that one act, and it infected and affected every facet of our lives as we know them. Their condition became our condition. Their entropy became ours. And we can see this playing itself out in our lives in all sorts of ways. Romans chapter 8, verse 21 says that we are in bondage to decay. In other words, entropy is inescapable and it dominates us. Entropy can damage every area of life, our, our bodies, our friendship, our work our families, our, our character, our finances. Most of us, of course, suffer from selective forms of entropy in our lives. We may be quite active and quite diligent in some areas of life, but there's always that one area, that one area that we don't really want to talk about or, or think about, despite the fact that we know it may need attention. Imagine the dad whose career is going great, He's climbing the corporate ladder high and fast, but his kids and his wife are, are drifting away. Or imagine the mom who drives to many soccer games and is going uh, full blast at work and family life, but, but her soul is undergoing decay and is in need of energy and attention to reverse that entropy. Or there's the couple that has the great house, the great life, lots of friends, Lots of stuff, but they haven't had a meaningful conversation with each other in, in months. Over the years, that same gentleman, Max Dupree, who talked about the interception of entropy, he came up with an interesting list of some of the signs that entropy might be advancing in your life. Let me read a few of these to you. <clears throat> the presence of unresolved tension in key relationships. 
a tendency towards superficiality as opposed to transparency. No longer having time for celebration and ritual. A loss of gratitude. A vague and or chronic sense of guilt. Addictions to substances or to feelings or to people. Everything when left on its own, when not given the attention and the energy that it needs, has a tendency towards disorder and decay, and it can take many forms in our lives, and that is entropy. We become apathetic or complacent. We settle for the path of least resistance in certain areas of our life, and entropy sets in, and hope fades, and dreams die. And that there, friends, is the fallout of sin. That's the entropy and decay that follows as we look to the wrong things in the wrong ways to try to get back what we know deep down has been missing from our lives. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we, we lost much. We lost our true home. We lost our blessing and affirmation. In many ways, we lost our true identities. Apart from God, we're in this sort of solitary confinement, unable to receive the commendation of God. And it drives people at times to madness. It's driving this world at times to, to madness and to mayhem. We all want that back deep down. We're all looking for a place to belong and a place to be affirmed, but we try to get there in the wrong sorts of ways. I was reading an article last week about the heroin and opioid problem that's plaguing this country. And the guy they were interviewing, I could just hear this guy's desperate desire to get back that which deep down he had sensed that he had lost. Listen to what he said. He said, when I put that needle in my arm, when I do a shot of heroin, it's almost like being back in my mother's womb, he says. I feel safe and warm. I don't have to worry about anything. Nobody is going to hurt me. That's how he feels, he says, even though he knows it's not true. He says he knows he's chasing something that is not real. But he says that in heroin, he's finally found a place where he feels that he truly belongs. He's longing to go home and to be safe and to feel loved, but he does not know how to get there. He's trying, but he's trying in desperate and in destructive ways. And that's entropy at work. That's entropy taking over and causing decay as people spend their lives in search of that elusive sense of belonging and approval that was there in the beginning, but that was lost in the garden that day. This is why so many of us crave attention. This is why so many of us desperately need approval. It's why so many of us find ourselves enslaved by people-pleasing and by the social media likes and by the attention of others. Because deep down, we do need it. But most often, we look to the wrong things trying to find it. We've seen in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God spoke and he brought light into the darkness. He, he brought order to the chaos. He brought life and he gave it meaning and he gave it purpose. 
But then in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent spoke, the darkness returned, the disorder and the chaos returned, and, and death came into the picture and began to dominate mankind. And instead of man subduing the creation, the creation began subduing the man. But as the Bible unfolds from there, in spite of what Adam and Eve did, God goes on speaking. He didn't have to, and he didn't need to. But what we begin to see is that he refused to leave us to ourselves and to our own destruction. And that brings us to our third and final point. As we consider how the biblical narrative unfolds after the fall, we're confronted again and again with God's grace. We see the preeminence of grace, not only in the book of Genesis, but across the whole of the Bible. We got a hint of it, didn't we, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Pastor Andrew talked about this last week. Right after everything went sideways, and in spite of Adam and Eve's rebellion against him, God gave this somewhat subtle promise that a person would be coming in the future who was, who was going to set things right. A person who would, be, who would be wounded by this serpent, but who in turn would deal a crushing blow to that serpent. God spoke that promise from the very beginning. There's a hint of hope there and a, and a glimmer of grace as God makes this promise. And as, as we saw God covering and clothing Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 in spite of what they had done, then, as the storyline continues in Genesis chapter 12, sure enough, we find God speaking again to a man named Abraham, and he makes this incredible promise to Abraham, too, that he would make Abraham a great nation, and that through one of his descendants, this promised one uh, would come, who would reverse the entropy and who would correct course for us. This was a big promise because Abraham was a very old man, and his wife was a very old woman, a very old and a very barren woman, in fact. But God spoke it, and, and it happened. And as the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible unfolds, you can watch and see how God's promises from the very beginning would be carried forward through Abraham and through Abraham's son, Isaac, and through Isaac's son, Jacob, and through Moses, and through David, and through the prophets, as he would speak to and speak through a series of individuals who he had chosen and called to use. God slowly and surely and methodically can be seen again and again remaking and recreating by the power of his word what Satan and sin had unmade and, and decreated. We see him speaking and calling and creating a people for himself, the nation of Israel, through whom he would make right all that had gone wrong. But there's something we mustn't miss in all this, and that is why he chose to use these particular people in the first place. And as we consider that question, the Bible makes one thing perfectly clear. God's selection of these individuals to carry forward his promises and his purposes, it was not based on their behavior or their merit. They were not chosen because they had done good and, and deserved it. In fact, as you read through the book of Genesis and beyond, you see without exception that the individuals chosen by God and, and used by God, they, they stumbled and faltered 
and at times engaged in highly questionable behavior. On two occasions, Abraham encouraged his wife to lie about her identity, and and he placed her in a very vulnerable position, one that, in fact, led her to become an adulteress. Later, Abraham, too, at his wife's suggestion, would be with another woman in Genesis chapter 16 because, because they got impatient, you see. God's promise of offspring for them did not seem to be playing out according to their uh, expected timing. And so they took matters into their own hands. Abraham's grandson Jacob would exploit his brother in chapter 25. He would deceive his father in chapter 27. Jacob's son Judah would father twins by his daughter-in-law, who was disguised as a harlot in chapter 38. These are all the individuals through whom God said the promised Savior would come. And interestingly, God never really rebukes any of these patriarchs or other individuals for their, for their aberrant behavior. Rather, he continues using them and empowering them in spite of them in order to get done what he intended to get done. One scholar said this, he said, it is astonishing to see the extent to which the ethical difficulties of the Genesis story and its characters are completely disregarded. He says there's a reason for that. It is because the narrative is intended to highlight something altogether different. It is intended not to highlight the sinfulness of man necessarily, though that is there for all to see, but rather it is meant to highlight the faithfulness of God to his people and to his promises. And friends, something needs to be said here about this, I think, that we must keep in mind as we study our Bibles. Just because the Bible may be silent about something in a particular passage or or does not explicitly condemn an act or an action at, at every turn does not necessarily mean that the Bible approves of that act or that action. Just because the Bible describes something does not mean that the Bible is necessarily condoning that something. The Bible elsewhere, in fact, condemns all of these things that I just mentioned. But in this instance, the greater emphasis is not on what they were doing wrong, but what what God was making right. Because as the biblical narrative unfolds, we see God's faithfulness to his promises and to his people even as his people again and again turned their backs on him and and let him down. And through all these narratives, and in spite of the shortcomings and the sin of these people, the voice of grace, the preeminence of grace, the promise of hope can be seen again and again and again. God continues speaking and continues showing that his faithfulness to fulfill his promises does not depend on his people and their faithfulness. It depends on him and his. And as we turn the corner into the New Testament, this voice of grace was was preparing to speak most loudly and most decisively into the human condition. As we open the pages of the New Testament, God is at it again. He's He's speaking again and and creating again. He's again bringing order to the chaos. He's bringing light into the darkness, and he's, he's creating new life 
And listen to how he did it. Listen to how God spoke this time, as told in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. As we've been talking about, God from the beginning was speaking to and through his broken people. He was revealing himself to his people all along through his, through his spoken word and, and through his written and recorded word as well. But now in these last days, he says, I'm speaking to you in a different way. I'm speaking to you through my son, through Jesus. Friends, do you know what we need more than anything else in this life? The greatest need of the human heart is that we need to hear God speaking to us again. More than anything else in this life, we need to hear God saying to us again, you are good and you are, you are valuable. You are loved. We need to hear that as much as our bodies need food and water. And in the coming of Jesus, that's exactly what God has spoken to us. When the Apostle John later writes his gospel, the book of John, he, he intentionally echoes the, the words of Genesis chapter 1 as he begins writing. The Apostle John, in his very first sentence, John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning... Those are the very same words the very, as, the, as the very first sentence of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. John, you see, wants us to think back and to look back. He wants us to make, make a certain connection between what he was saying and what Genesis chapter 1 says in the creation account. And listen to what John says in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, that, all things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, we were reminded of the most Really, the most staggering truth of all, John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John is identifying Jesus Christ as the Word of God who has been speaking all along and through whom all things were made in the beginning and, and from the beginning. In Jesus, we see not only the power of the Word, but the person who is the Word. Some things in life seem irreversible, but Jesus is in the business of reversing the irreversible. He came to undo what happened in Genesis chapter 3. He came to disarm the serpent, came to defeat death. He came to reverse the entropy in our hearts and in this world on a on a personal level and on a cosmic level as well. If you read the Gospels, you'll discover that Jesus reversed weather patterns. He reversed blindness. 
He reversed paralysis, and he reversed death. At the cross, Jesus intercepted the entropy for us in part now, but in full in due time. And he did so by taking that entropy on himself. He became entropy so we wouldn't have to. He became decreated and deconstructed so that you and I could be recreated and reconstructed. He does offer to reverse the entropy in your life if you'll let him. It's not easy, and it is only partial at this point, but that's where, that's where things are headed. In Revelation chapter 21, we see what's coming. We see the complete interception of entropy in every possible dimension in Revelation chapter 21 for those who put their trust and their faith in the power of the Word to do what He said He's going to do. Listen to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will dwell with us, and we will, we will dwell with Him. That's the end of spiritual entropy forever. But let's keep reading. Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the end of emotional entropy. No more crying, no more mourning. It's the end of relational entropy. It's the end of physical entropy. No more death, no more pain. And Revelation 21, verse 5, is the nail in the coffin for sin and Satan and death. It says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The reversal of entropy, the, the interception of entropy by the power of the Word. Friends, as we wrap up our time together, let's never lose sight of something here. The people who God used to get all this done, the lineage and family tree of God's people and of Jesus, it included liars and cheaters and connivers. It included murderers and adulterers and prostitutes. It included broken people at every turn, just like you and I. Every single person in the lineage leading up to Jesus God's chosen men and women at times stumbled and faltered in sin and in betrayal of God. But many of these very same people were used magnificently by God, nevertheless. So if, if you ever think that your past or your present is just uh, too messed up, that surely God does not have big plans for you or high expectations of you, I'd like to ask you to reconsider that this morning. None of these people were chosen because of their qualifications or their education or their experience. These people were not chosen because of their intellect or their strength or their theological insights. They were chosen by God based on the power of His Word to get done all that He 
intends to get done. And so don't count yourself out of anything because of where you came from or where you've been or what you've done or what you haven't done. That's the enemy trying to deceive you and to hold you down. Don't paint a small picture of how God may want to use you to make a difference uh, in this world and in the lives of those that he brings across your path. Instead, write him a blank check and let the power, let the word of God fill it in and trust him that he can and will use you in, in unexpected and, and powerful and beautiful ways. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for <clears throat> this morning. Thank you for speaking to us through your scriptures and through your Son. Thank you that you would do what you did, that you would move towards us in Jesus to reverse the trajectory of sin in our lives, to reverse the reality of death. Thank you that you came towards us in Jesus, not to bring judgment against us, but to take on that judgment for us. Thank you for your grace. Would we see it this morning? Would we savor it this morning? Would we be moved and changed by it this morning? In Jesus' name.